0: Hi, this is Dr. Denise Furness, and I specialize in nutrigenomics and epigenetics. And if you are interested in nutrigenomics or you're a practitioner who wants to understand the clinical value of nutrigenomics and genetic profiling, particularly in relation to hormone-related disorders, then join me for the upcoming BioCeuticals Clinical Mastery Session titled Genetics, the Missing Puzzle Piece for Estrogen-Related Disorders on November 9th
1: and the 16th. So we've got two sessions and I'll be delving into key genes as well as SNP-guided treatment strategies, and there'll be a focus on PCOS and endometriosis. So head over to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your spot today.
0: Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence based integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Adrian Lepresti, clinical psychologist, and joining us today is Dr. Nicholas Carteris, IV League educated psychologist, internationally renowned speaker, and one of the USA's foremost addiction experts. Hi, Nicholas, thanks for joining us on the line today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure.
0: Uh, I wanted to talk to you particularly about your your interest in screen use and the dangers of internet use, and you've written a fascinating book on the dangers of excess gaming and screen use called Glow Kids. So can you tell us a bit about how you became interested in gaming addiction and the dangers of excess screen time?
1: Yeah. I, I was working as a psychologist, as a clinician with young people, with adolescents and young adults. And my primary focus had been mental health and substance addiction. That was what my training had been in and mm-hmm. also uh, teaching at a university and doing a lot of work at secondary schools at that point. This is about 12, 13 years ago. And being trained and tuned into diagnosing the clinical aspects of substance addiction, I started noticing some of the similar behaviors with young people and their devices. Um, you know, if you went through the DSM or the ICD diagnostic criteria for substance addiction, it was uh, almost matching exactly what I was seeing with some of these 14, 17, 18 year olds. And my my real aha moment happens. Um, I write about this in Glow Kids when I had a young man that was sent into my office about 11, 12 years ago. Mm. Who he was, where he was, was. His eyes were wide and was blinking rather intensely. And I kept asking him if he knew where he was, if he knew, just to give him a sense of bearing and orientation. And after a couple of minutes of sort of looking around my room and trying to get his bearings, he asked me if we were still in the game. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, no, we're not in the game anymore. And I find out later that he had been playing World of Warcraft for 10 to 12 hours a night for multiple weeks, (laughs) and he was... Was the intersection of sleep deprivation and multiple uh, multiple hour jags of gaming had led to what we might call video game psychosis, where he didn't know where the game ended and where reality began. He was essentially in the matrix. And that was eye-opening and shocking for me because I was used to seeing substance-induced psychosis with psychoactives and things like crystal meth and cocaine, but I'd never seen reality-blurred by gaming or by digital experience. And and that was my first time experiencing that, but not my last. And and that was sort of the beginning where I started saying, this is something new and different that's happening here. And I don't think we're all fully aware of of what some of these clinical potentials might be. So that was really how I first sort of fell into this.
0: Wow. So so this is psychosis induced by excess screen time, excess, excess gaming.
1: Yeah, there are a couple of British... Psychologists have come to call it a game transfer phenomenon, GTP, and game transfer phenomenon is where visual or auditory aspects of the game will transfer into waking awareness. You know, essentially, you'll have a gamer will hear or see the game. The game will have visual auditory intrusions into their waking reality. And most gamers experience brief moments of that. They might hear a little... Gunfire or some aspect of the game intrudes into their awareness, but they're aware that it's a it's a shadow aspect. Mm. This young man was fully, you know, we would call it a, a video game-induced psychosis. Uh, the problem was it's not genuine psychosis. If he would have gotten some sleep and unplugged for a couple of days, he would have been fine, but he instead went to psychiatric hospital and... They put him on antipsychotics and they held him there for three weeks and they didn't treat him in retrospect and what would have been the best way to treat him because it wasn't genuine psychosis. It was sort of a transitory gaming-induced psychosis.
0: So when it comes to excess screen time and internet addiction and gaming, how bad is is the problem?
1: Well, I think it's the addiction of our times because I think the ubiquity of it, I think we're all swimming in it. And I think the larger question that I've come to understand over the last five years since I wrote Glow Kids, and I'm working on sort of the follow-up book now, which is fix a little bit of a wider societal lens at the issue. Mm. The, the uphill climb I had to fight five years ago was to get tech addiction or screen addiction accepted as a real clinical disorder. And back then, there was some pushback. Really, can people be habituated or addicted to their devices? And I like to say that we're, you know... We're mad for our devices as our devices are driving us mad. But that's been accepted now. The ICD-11 has as a diagnostic criteria, it's in a gaming disorder. But back then, five years ago, I wrote an op-ed for the New York Post called Digital Heroin, where I was really looking at some of the brain imaging and some of the clinical uh, research and saying, look, this is very analogous to substance addiction, so that was sort of the first step to get that established. But now I think the larger picture of it in terms of how much we're all swimming in this is, what is our intersection as a species? What is our intersection as human beings with this highly technological way that we're living? What is the mental health impact of that? Mm. And I think it's a bit like the frog in the water that's getting warmer doesn't realize that the warm water's reaching the boil until it gets boiled alive. I think we've all been gradually swimming in a very a natural way of living. We weren't meant to be sedentary, screen-staring, overworked, overstressed, sleep-deprived, meaning-deprived, isolated beings. And so I think when you look at our record rates of depression, our record rates of suicide, our record rates of anxiety, our record rates of ADHD, our record rates of drug overdoses, I think there's a through-line there. I think they're all connected because I think we're, we're on psychiatric fire, and I think the way that we're living is antithetical to our human genetics. We weren't meant to be like that. We we needed face-to-face community. We needed to be more physically active. We need to be more purpose-driven. And I think the digital landscape has robbed us of all those things. And now with COVID, COVID was just kerosene on an already burning fire. So it's really, I think, the main driver of what I would call our mental health crisis. So it's less about are we addicted to our devices? That's sort of a given that we're all to some degree, you know, whether you want to call it full-blown tech addiction, but to, to some degree we're all impacted by our devices. And that's where I think the the paradigm, because we know that the more screen time, uh screen time robs us of two things that are The drivers of depression. It drives us of our physical movement. We're more sedentary because of screen time, and it drives and it robs us of face-to-face interactions. So those two things alone, physical activity and face-to-face interactions are the two best non-pharmaceutical antidotes to depression. But screen time is a nuclear bomb, those two things. Screen time has made us a more sedentary and less face-to-face species. And we know Genetically, we're hardwired for community. The tribe survived. We know that you know our species was evolved. There were a couple of eons to to be tribal in the sense that we needed each other for support because we weren't the strongest and we weren't the most we weren't the biggest, but we were we had strength in numbers, and that was an evolutionary adaptation that's hardwired into our psychological DNA, and. We also needed physical activity. And so we know that without physical activity and without face to face community, those are the two main drivers of depression. And what we're seeing is a huge mm. depression epidemic, a global depression pandemic, where depression rates, uh, by some estimates, have tripled as we're throwing more and more antidepressants at the problem. So if the endogenous theory of, of you know, the brain chemistry theory of depression was accurate, if depression was simply about neurotransmitters and depleted serotonin, then the more prescriptions of antidepressants should be solving that problem. But what we've seen, if you look at the, the bar graph of depression, and if you, look, if you were to overlay a bar graph of our antidepressant prescriptions, we've given increasingly, increasingly, increasingly more antidepressant medication, and yet depression is still spiking. Yeah. So then we have to say, well, it's not just a brain chemistry issue. It has to be a lifestyle issue. It has to be an environment issue. And and what's changed in our environment, in our landscape over the last 20 years, except the digital piece, you know, we've become a different species over the last 15 to 20 years because of our high-tech capabilities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Is Yeah, I know there's certainly the uh, neurotransmitter deficiency hypothesis is certainly limited mm-hmm. and we need to look at a whole range of lifestyle factors that might be contributing to the epidemic of mental health mm-hmm. and certainly reading your book I'm just amazed by some of the statistics with regards to how often people are, are texting and and using social media mm-hmm. and gaming and and i know even a study that that was done here in australia on about 3000 people 3000 high school students 10% of them reported themselves as being highly or very highly addicted to, to the internet. So mm-hmm. I know that our statistics are probably similar to what's going on in the US.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. What's interesting is that COVID has acted as sort of a, um, well, it's sort of been the proof of the hypothesis that too much of what we're talking about is problematic for our mental health because what we've, saw, what we've seen, what we're seeing during COVID has been a doubling of screen time and a tripling of depression rates. Well, so, yeah. you know, the quarantines, the isolation, the the more and more dependence on, you know, it, it's by necessity, we've got to be Zooming and remote working and remote schooling and remote, all these other things, you know, remote, 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 but too much remote makes Johnny a depressed and suicidal boy. And, mm. and so that's that amplification of all those dynamics that were problematic before COVID has been the confirmation of the hypothesis that Something was amiss because, like you said, it wasn't just brain chemistry. Well, and it is brain chemistry in the sense that you can, as we know, environment can, can impact brain chemistry. You know, trauma can change brain chemistry, but so can lifestyle. So toxic lifestyle can create toxic brain chemistry. And we can't just throw the pharmaceutical sink at it and think that we're going to fix the problem unless we address the underlying societal shift that's happened. of how we live and how we interact as a species.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so, really, then if that neurotransmitter deficiency or, or imbalance hypothesis is correct, then, then we really need to go, well, what is it that's going on that might be contributing to that? And we know that, uh, you know, certainly from reading your book, that yeah, a lot of the gaming and, and the effect that that has mm-hmm. on, on brain chemistry is significant. So, is gaming a problem just for children and teens, or is it also a problem for adults?
1: Well, I did a, I did a pretty high-profile intervention for one of the, the national news shows here, the a- ABC's 2020, That I did a televised intervention for a 42-year-old IT executive in Ohio who was escaping his, you know, this was a, a man who had four children and a, a, an attorney as a wife, and, you know, he would come home from work and he would just go down to the man cave and escape his reality. You know, I think at the end of the day, those of us that work with addiction, we know that A lot of addiction is about escaping, right? It's the great escape. Mm. The great escape artists, the the houdinis of the mental health world. And so, you know, whether you're escaping emotional pain, or you're escaping, or an existential crisis, or you're escaping uh, a relationship that you feel trapped in, and that's the other word that we use a lot with addiction, right? It's if you feel trapped. There was that famous research by. Canadian professor, um, Bruce Alexander, who did Rat Park. You know, he did the... Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Was, it was great research where, you know, back in the 60s, they did addiction research where they would put the rat in a, alone in the skinner cage and the rat had the opportunity to hit the lever and one lever would get the rat morphine water and the other lever would give the rat food. And invariably, the rat alone in the skinner cage would hit the lever for morphine water to the point of overdose. And so the conclusions by the clinical society back then, or the community, the clinical community back then, was, okay, That this speaks to the highly... It was a sort of a substance-based perspective on addiction, that, okay, addiction's all about how addicting the substances are. Here, look at these rats. These rats would rather get high, and eat to the point of self-destruction. And Bruce Alexander came along and said, well, no, I don't know if that's an experiment about that. Or Rather, is it an experiment about isolation? Yes. And maybe if these rats were in community, maybe if they weren't isolated, maybe the morphine water would be less attractive to them. And so that's when he did his famous rat park experiment where he created a, a rat playland of rats that were in community. They were able to play with one another and they had wheels that they could frolic in and they could have sex with one another. Um, they had access to morphine water. And the rats that were in community and had more connection, there were no rates of morphine water abuse or overdose. And it was shift simply by changing their environment into a healthier, less toxic environment, it you know, eliminated the addiction problem, even though they had the same access to the morphine water. And I think that's sort of where we're at right now. I think we're sort of in to some degree, very toxic lifestyles. Again, overworked, overstressed, we're never really unplugged. You know, those of us that have careers and work, you know, we thought, we, you know, 20 years ago, everybody thought having emails would be a wonderful thing and smartphones that could keep us perpetually plugged in. But now nobody ever really can unplug and really sort of complementize and have purely restorative recreational time because to some degree, we're all tethered to, you know, we're all sort of on high alert and what uh, that does to our adrenal system. So, so we've created this sort of toxic environment, and and like any other addiction, that's about escapism. Those of us, and especially young people, because I work a lot with young people, who are feeling trapped and disempowered and stuck in realities that they can't handle. Mm. Well, there's a much more available alternative to escape than drugs and alcohol. Because to be a drug addict takes some effort. You've got to find a drug dealer, and you've got to cope. Go Purchase, you know, whatever your drug of choice is. But the ubiquity of digital makes it a push-button escape. So talk about gaming escapism. So like that executive that I did the intervention on, he couldn't stand the reality, the pressure of being married with four children, and he hated his job, and he was an office worker slaving away in a cubicle. So he would go home and he would play Grand Theft Auto, and he was a, a wannabe gangster in the fantasy world of an avatar that he lived a vicarious life through. And that worked better for him than drinking a fifth of vodka every night. Yeah, so So. we
0: really need to then... rather than just look at the addiction, we need to also look at what's going on in that person's life that might be contributing to that addiction. And, and obviously, as you mentioned, escapism is one of those things that could be occurring for them. Sure. And, and it sounds like, you know, the problem is that it's widely available. It's it's something that we can just go into our, we don't even need to leave the room, do we? You can just uh, use our phones to go on a screen and it's, it's freely available and 24 hours, seven days a week.
1: So it's readily available for adults in terms of you know, push-button escapism. But the problem for children developmentally that I write about in glow kids quite a bit is that instant gratification aspect of it really, really primes the pump for impulsivity. And it really the interesting part is neurophysiologically, you know, and they've looked at this and Dr. Christakis, who does a lot of the ADHD research here with screens in the United States and the University of Washington. He's looked at a lot of this. So not only is it readily available, but if you're a child who hasn't really developed your prefrontal cortex and your your executive functioning and your impulse control, and we know that the things that nurture that the most are delayed gratification, you know, the old marshmallow test, you know, one marshmallow today, but if I don't have it today, I'll have two tomorrow. Yes. Um, If I can cultivate the skills of patience and delayed gratification, those bode well for long term outcomes of children and as young adults. But push buttons and gratification now is priming the pump towards impulsivity. And what they were finding on the brain imaging research is the part of the brain devoted to that, in the same way that it atrophies, in the same way that it gets compromised in substance addiction, is happening with screen time. I think that was the biggest shock for a lot of people because people can, I think they were able to conceptualize that substances you ingest something and that can change your physiology and neurophysiology. But I think people were really shocked to find out that something that you're not actually putting into your body can change your, your, your brain, mm. can change your neurophysiology. And that's what we were seeing. So you were seeing the DGM, the dense gray matter of the prefrontal cortex was actually shrinking and being compromised, thus leading to more impulsivity with excessive screen time. So if you give a five-year-old too much screen time, they're never going to develop their attentional muscles, their ability to delay gratification. They're going to be wired and primed for impulsivity across lifetime. And impulsivity is also predictor for substance abuse and all sorts of other not great outcomes long term.
0: Yeah, I remember reading in your book, you talked about how gaming companies hire the best neurobiologists and neuroscientists to elicit a physical response so they certainly know what they're doing and and what the outcomes are trying to achieve
1: yeah yeah the the whole the dopaminergic response and the whole leveling up they're very you've got to give the devil their due they're very efficient in terms of creating highly habituating dopamine activating platforms that prime an addictive response and You know, it's interesting how um, I don't know if it's made the news yet there in Australia, but it was big news here about a week ago. We it was in our local sixty minutes about you know the Facebook whistleblower and how some of the big tech companies. They knew, you know, the, the story was that with Instagram, you know, that they had their own internal clinical research showing that excessive engagement with Instagram was increasing suicide rates uh, 13% higher suicide rates amongst teenage girls the more that they were on Instagram. Mm. They know not only was the, the blueprint for big tech and some of these gaming companies habituation, because that drives engagement and drives sales and profitability. But I think the really shocking part that I think a lot of people found offensive was, okay, so we get it. You know, a lot of toy manufacturers and uh, food manufacturers, they try to, you know, sell their product. They use marketing techniques. But now they knew from their own internal emails that their marketing strategies and their their habit-forming strategies were leading to psychological harm. And they ignored the data. They ignored the by their own internal emails. Let's change the algorithm because the algorithm, at least with Instagram, is about created self-loathing, created a negative self-concept. And they refused. Well, it's a, it was almost collateral damage. We're going to accept that some young girls are going to commit suicide, but if we change the algorithm to make it because we know that that the lizard brain is going to respond to things like like hate and self-loathing and and adrenaline. In gaming, mm. you know, so it's all about activating the lizard brain, whether it's adrenaline or set loathing as I said. And similarly to the tobacco industry, and here at the, uh, in the congressional hearings that big tech was in front of, they called it the big tobacco moment because similarly here in the tobacco industry, there was an understanding when the when big tobacco in the 1970s were went under the on, under the the magnifying glass that they knew that their product was a carcinogen. And they sold it to children anyway, and they marketed it to children with Joe Camo and techniques anyway. Yes. It'd be one thing if they didn't realize that. Okay, so, okay, I didn't realize that my product is harmful, and I'm just doing my best to sell a product. I sell, uh, you know, encyclopedias door to door. I didn't know that they were harmful. But here you have email trails that are documenting that they know that their by design addicting platforms are harmful. Mm. And they're ignoring that, and they're saying so what? And and that's the part that I think is, is sort of eye opening for a lot of people right now, that they they want to have some accountability for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. They, you know, obviously they're in the business of of selling, and and they have great scientists who know what they're doing to be able to make us more addicted. I know that you use the term it's like an electronic cocaine, and and I know mm-hmm. that one study you mentioned that. Uh, Video games can increase dopamine as much as sex, and this was a—I think it was a 1998 yeah. game or something.
1: Yeah, well, it was—it was a 1998 study by Dr. Cope in the oh, Nature okay. uh, magazine, and so they were looking at different substances and experiences and how much they raised dopamine levels. And in that 1998 study, where they used a 1998 game, which wasn't quite, you know, Pong, but it wasn't the the highly arousing dopamine activated games of today, like Grand Theft Auto or some of the other more intense games, right? It was as dopaminergic as sex, 100% dopamine activated. So food was raising dopamine 50, percent but sex and video games were raising dopamine 100. And and the difference when I sometimes I, I give uh, I speak at conferences about this, mm. it's even worse than that because it, without being crude, sex, and we know that the dopaminergic response was an evolutionary adaptation for survival. That two primary survival functions were incentivized by a dopamine response and that was eating. So eating food feels good, so we dopamine gets released when we eat. So that kept us alive. And also procreation we released dopamine and that felt good. So we continue to do that. But there's no, there's no uh, benefit to um, cocaine use, which spikes dopamine, or crystal meth use, which spikes dopamine, or video game use. But the problem with that is that you can play a video game for, I mean, I've had clients who have played video games for two or three days straight, mm. where typically the, the sexual experience uh, is short-lived. And so you're creating this dopamine spike for a much longer plateau period. So you're releasing dopamine hour after hour after hour, and you're also raising the adrenaline. So you're raising the HPA axis, the the fight or flight response, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis is activated. And so now you're going through extended fight or flight for multiple hours. And we're we're not meant to go into fight or flight for multiple hours because then you go through adrenal fatigue. And now you've gone through this extended dopaminergic response and this extended adrenal period. We're just not wired for that and so that that leads to all sorts of other issues with young people where you know and, and the ones that I've worked with that have this adrenal fatigue, it looks a lot like PTSD and anxiety. they're shot you know their sort of nerves are shot they're sleep deprived and they're wired and tired and they're not really they can't focus and they're very jittery and they're very jumpy that kind of thing.
0: I know a lot of practitioners who'll be listening to this podcast use the term adrenal fatigue and and obviously look at lifestyle factors and stress and so forth. Mm-hmm. And from what you're saying, you know, they really need to ask about screen time and gaming use because that can also really activate that HPA axis, that stress response that's going on for them.
1: At the end of the day, that's what it is. It's a stimulant. It's a stimulant stress response. That's where the engagement and activation comes in. If it wasn't, People would just get off their devices after ten minutes. But you know, as I wrote about in Grow Kids, the gaming companies—they know that you know when they beta test their games, they're looking for that blood pressure spike. They're looking for that arousal because arousal drives engagement, which drives habituation. So the intersection of adrenaline and dopamine is the sweet spot for habituation and addiction. So, so whether it's a social media platform, whether you're, whether it's TikTok. Instagram or Grand Theft Auto, the name of the game is arousal mm. and continual arousal hour after hour. Not only does that create the adrenal fatigue profile, but but even worse, I think, in a, in a, in a very real way, uh, and I've seen this a lot with adolescents that I work with, it desensitizes them to the real world because you get so habituated to these hyper-immersive, arousing screen experiences that everything in the real world pales in comparison. You know, good luck listening to your math teacher drone on in school or good luck trying to have a conversation with a friend or reading a book, God forbid. All those mundane day-to-day activities now become pale, pale experiences compared to these other really stimulating experiences that they get from screen time. Yes. That's, that's almost the bigger problem. So you get these kids that look bored. They look bored with life, like, yeah, shoulders shrugging and sort of apathetic and not passionate about anything and a, a sort of NUE, a lack of a passion because their dopamine receptors have just been burned out.
0: Well, people these days, they can't even go to the toilet without having an electronic device, <laughs> device with them. So <laughs> uh, obviously they need that stimulation even in the, in the toilet. Uh,
1: what's it, I think it's a, it's a, there's a form of anxiety for us adults when we're without our phone. if we, Our battery runs low, I think, oh, what's the word oh, Nomophobia is sort of this anxiety when we sort of the fear that our battery might die and we might be without a phone in our car or God forbid, we've all become so dependent on it except just children are more more affected.
0: What's it called, memophobia?
1: N- nomophobia, and it's, uh, it's sort of a combination of, uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
0: All right, so you got then obviously the effect that gaming and screens have on dopamine and then you've mentioned the HPA axis that occurs Uh, And and the concern is that we've got young children who are being exposed to screens and the impact that that has on their developing brain. So we're obviously seeing some significant changes in the the brain as a result of excess screen time.
1: Yeah, the one one study that I mentioned in Glow Kids that I like the most, the one brain imaging study that I think shows the brain changes, I think it's the best study because it's a pre- and post-MRI study because some of the brain imaging research was clearly showing that the brains of gamers were different. and, and But one of the counter-arguments were, well, maybe, maybe folks, maybe kids or teenagers that had already compromised prefrontal cortex were gravitated towards gaming, so maybe it wasn't the gaming, a little bit of a chicken-or-the-egg argument. Maybe it wasn't the gaming that created the, the, the deficit in the prefrontal cortex. Maybe kids with a, a deficit in the prefrontal cortex gravitate towards gaming. Mm. But this study at uh, Indiana University Medical School They took a group of young men who were not gamers, and they did an MRI, an fMRI, before the study. And then they had them play violent video games for 10 hours a week for two weeks. And by the way, 10 hours a week is a walk in the park for most gamers. You know, a lot of the gamers that I've worked with, 10 hours is a a night's play. But anyway, they made them play for 10 hours a week for two weeks. And then they took an MRI scan at the end of the two weeks, and you saw a significant impact on their prefrontal lobe, on the prefrontal cortex. You saw less activation, especially in the part of the brain related to impulsivity and aggression. And so that was just after two weeks. Mm. Now, you know, the bigger question is, is that permanent? Is there neuroplasticity? So will that, you know, fix it, correct itself if if a person stops ingesting that? And they did another follow-up fMRI on those same people in that study a few weeks later and the ones who had stopped gaming, they did see a reversal of some of those effects. So I do think the hope is that some of these effects, because of the powerful aspect of neuroplasticity, can be reversible. But the the impacts that are developmental, I don't see as being reversible. You know, we know that ADHD types of, you know, developmental stages, if you're if you're adversely impacting infants and children when they're three, four, five, six, seven years old, that's the most impressionable time of development for a child's brain if you're uh, adversely doing things there. And the one study that was just most recently in the um, New England Journal of Medicine, and it looked at infants that were two years old in screen time and looked at cognitive deficits that were happening uh, with over an hour of screen time as opposed to no screen time. Yes. So we're we're changing the brains of our children. Uh, you know, the, the big question is how permanent will some of this be? Um, and how long-term and what, what will it look like 10, 20 years down the road when some of these kids grow up. Uh, and we're beginning to see that now because we are seeing, you know, we're, we're seeing the graduating class from 15 years ago uh, stretch into young adulthood today. And we're, I think we are seeing some of those psychiatric uh, red flags
0: yeah, and we obviously as time goes on, we'll be able to see that long, long longitudinal data where you know what mm-hmm. happens when young children are exposed to screens, and what happens when they're adults, or, or even you know the concern is you know what happens in terms of increasing their susceptibility to cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease, and have, is, have you seen any mm-hmm. research about that yeah. yet? Or well,
1: yeah, the so the there's a lot of research there was. Uh, that looked at the myelination and the the white matter, so the myelin sheath. There was uh, a UCLA researcher, Dr. Bartzokas, that did all the myelination research with substance addiction, and he died a few four or five years ago, but, but he showed that, you know, chronic substance abusers had white matter or myelin sheath abnormalities that really mirrored dementia, Alzheimer's. It was, you know, you know, the, the myelin sheath as as a white lipid insulation of, of the axon cable, you know, it looks like the insulation cable. It started showing porous, brittle, compromised, like a Swiss cheese effect. Mm. And and that was from drug use. Now, they did similar studies that Bartokas had done with substances with screen time, and they found the same effect. The myelin sheath is extremely fragile. And excessive screen time was compromising the myelin sheath in the same way that substance abuse was, which was doing it in the same way that Alzheimer's and dementia does. And and if you have a brittle or or compromised myelin sheath, Mm. the rapidity, how optimally your brain functions is a byproduct of how robust your myelin sheath is, and now substance abuse and screen time. And and as we know, certain dietary things can really compromise your myelin sheath. We know that certain foods and prions and some of meats can create some of these issues. So so yeah, we're going to be seeing more and more of these issues, I think, as we move forward forward down the road, and and they continue to unfold in a very problematic way.
0: So when we're doing our assessment these days, we really need to ask about a history of computer use, gaming, screen time, when it began, how often it began, how often children were exposed to it, and, and really using that information as part of our assessment, because it's obviously, from what you're saying, it has a significant effect on our neurology and our biology.
1: I absolutely, we're doing it here more and more in the United States, where part of the biopsychosocial assessment has to include a piece about a screen time assessment. How much time is your child, teenager, young adult on the screen? What type of screen usage? Because mm. uh, it, it also impacts their sleep patterns, right? So we know. I mean, I was at a committee on special education for a young person. They were going to they were ordering a sleep study on this person because they thought, and he kept falling asleep in class, and they thought he had a sleep disorder. And the simple question that was asked at the meeting of the parents were, what are his digital habits? Well, he does stay up gaming until three o'clock in the morning. Do you think that has something to do with why he falls asleep in class? Because we just think he has narcolepsy. Well, if your son is staying until three or four in the morning, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to perhaps infer that there may be a correlation. So why don't you try first eliminating the screen time or at least cutting it back to you know, we talk about sleep hygiene, because... You know that the screen is also disrupts the circadian sleep cycle, and, mm-hmm. and 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 that begins to look like ADHD in school in the morning. Yeah, a, a lot of various impacts that I think are often getting misdiagnosed as other things. Uh, one of my, my one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Victoria Dunkley, she's an adolescent psychiatrist. She wrote the book called uh, How to Reset Your Child's Brain, and she won't diagnose or prescribe any medication for any child or adolescent. So after they've done a four-week uh, digital detox, until they've unplugged for four weeks. Mm. And what she's found in the 1,000 kids that she's seen over the last 10 years is that fully up to 70% of them become symptom-free by just doing digital detox. Whether they're coming in there for ADHD or mood disorder, even spectrum types of autism issues, she's seen greatly either totally go away or greatly improve by just taking away the stimulant of screen time.
0: Um, I know that uh, a lot of practitioners uh, listening today obviously are aware of the importance of diets and, and uh, the importance of of improving somebody's diet and the relationship that has on on mental health. But obviously now we've really just got to be aware of screen time and maybe it's a a detox like you've mentioned before you you really get a good baseline assessment to see what's actually really going on for the individual and is there anything going on biologically that you know, other than the the effect of screen time and, and gaming and all that. And you've mentioned here that you know, the effect it has on depression and ADHD mm-hmm. and obviously sleep mm-hmm. hygiene and what about the um research with the link between video games and violence and aggression? What's the research say about that?
1: Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, just back just I just wanted to quickly comment on what you had said about and I think a a good way to look at it if you're a clinician is if you're going to do a nutritional assessment, you should just for nutritional diet. You should also do a digital diet assessment. Yeah, what is what is your client's digital diet? Because that that's going to tell you a lot. The aggression research was, was voluminous. It tends, you know, it was uh, Craig Anderson and Iowa State were the were the main folks. But there's been a lot of other international research around this as well. You know, if we go back to the thesis that a lot of screen time, especially gaming, if we look at screen time as a as digital drugs. And if if there's a continuum of drugs and one end of the spectrum, you have something like crystal meth. and the other end you have maybe cannabis. So, you know, not all screen time is as toxic, just like not all substances are as toxic. Mm. The most, let's call it some of the most uh, toxic would be violent first-person shooter games, you know, Grand Theft Auto and and those types of games. Well, of course, you know, whether you're looking through the lens of social learning theory or from just desensitization, or just from a dermatologic standpoint, you're raising the thermostat of, of, of aggression with some of these kids. So the research has been pretty voluminous. And they were clear to say that the conclusions, and the one study in particular was a meta study that looked at over 40,000 young people, and it looked at, I think it was over 30 different studies. Uh, and the, the conclusion was that the results were causal, not just correlational. That screen time does lead to increased aggression out you know, the, the caveat with that is that increased aggression doesn't always mean violence. It's, uh, just because I'm, I'm more aggressive, if, uh, if you drink two cups of coffee, you may be a little bit more aggressive. doesn't mean you're going to assault someone, but you're more, you're more primed. You know, the pump is primed for, for violence if, you're, if you raise the aggression temperature. And so there's been quite a bit of research that shows even they've, they've manipulated the extreme experiences with things like playing the same video game. One has blood. The other doesn't have blood. One has sound. The other one doesn't have sound, adding violent sound effects, people screaming, things like that. Mm. Um, and they all they all have an impact. The more immersive and the more realistic the violence, the more impactful it is on on shaping aggression you remember back in the days they used to say, well, cartoons, you know, like Bugs Bunny and The Roadrunner, they're pretty violent, and maybe they raise violence levels. But the difference was, well, it was twofold. There's two major differences with, let's call it, television violence of the 1970s, whether it was cartoon violence or a police drama. Like, I'm trying to be culturally relevant with what might have been a police show in Australia in the 1970s, but let's call it, you know, um, I'm thinking about Starsky and Hutch or so, any kind of police show here. The violence was was non-realistic, right? You sh- you shot somebody on television, there was no blood. It was pop, pop, bang, bang. Same thing with some of the cartoons with the Roadrunner or Wile E. Coyote and Bugs Bunny. There was no realism to it. Yes. So now fast forward to the main difference is the, the player is not a passive viewer of the experience. There's, they're an immersed, active participant in the experience. And there's a lot of... Blurring of the lines, especially with younger children who haven't fully developed their reality testing yet. So for some young children, if you're five or six or seven and you're playing some immersive video game on a 50-inch plasma TV, you are going to have a difficult time saying where reality ends and the game begins, but then also the realism of it. You know, like in Grand Theft Auto, I remember in one of the iterations of Grand Theft Auto, uh, I think it was Grand Theft Auto 4, I mean, you were beating the prostitute and they added the sound effects of the bat thumping on the the head of the person. Those kind of ugly details matter and because they add to the realism, which I think adds to the the destructive and aggression-increasing effect of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. and if it's part of your world and you're exposed to to these scenes and and images, then it's certainly going to have an effect on how you how you see the world and and your belief systems mm-hmm. and all of that. So there's no doubt that it's going to happen. I also uh, mm-hmm. I, I wrote down here a interesting study that you mentioned in your book. Children were exposed to a Call of Duty game, and then they were required to season food with hot chili sauce for a taste tester who couldn't stand hot chili sauce and and those who just played Call of Duty added significantly more chili sauce than those who didn't. Right. So, even those, I remember that sounding, I had a good laugh. I thought it's amazing. Wow. Yeah,
1: they have pretty, pretty ingenious ways, right, of how they mm. measure increased aggression, right? So it's just like how, like you, I thought that was pretty humorous how they, <laughs> they uh, quantified that.
0: Absolutely. So, we've got then. Um, Obviously the links with the impact it has on our, our biology, the, it s- seems as though there's there's strong evidence to indicate that it increases and it's obviously a bi directional relationship, but it certainly increases the risk of depression and ADHD and, and other mental mm-hmm. health disorders. You've mentioned the impact effect it has on our sleep and obviously it's gonna and our social connections and obviously it's also gonna affect our you know, what we eat and our diets and things like that too, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the stereotype of, of the gamer is, you know, they're just surviving on energy drinks, toxic energy drinks, and they're not notorious for their balanced, vegetable-laden diets. They're notorious for their high-sugar, high-octane diets so they could stay up longer because, again, we have to always remind ourselves at the end of the day, these are stimulants. And to be a successful gamer and so many of these young kids, I can't, I can't believe it's the fastest-growing, quote-unquote, sport, and it nauseates me to that that esports or gaming is not considered a sport. Mm. You know, in, and that esports are the fastest growing both participant and entertainment sport in in the world. But these athletes who are training for their esports, um, you know, their training requires energy drinks, Red Bull, and sugar to stay awake for multiple hours and days. So typically, and, and I run a, a, one of the few clinics in the United States that has an expertise and you know, we we have a track for treating gamers and tech addiction. So in the last two years we've been treating residentially treating uh young, you know, 17 to 25, 30 year old gamers for the last two years in a in an eight week residential program. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of them are coming in well, it's one of two things, right? They're either malnourished, they're coming in underweight, malnourished with the worst dietary habits, the worst hygiene and Terrible sleep habits, or they're coming in significantly overweight and obese, but they're they're typically not coming in healthy, you know, physically exercising and getting good restorative sleep. It's one extreme or the other of underweight or overweight.
0: Sounds very much like uh, your your addictions to uh, your illicit substances, doesn't? It? They're presenting very similar in similar ways. Mm-hmm. So if practitioners seeing somebody with uh, who's they're concerned they' you know, excessively playing games or using social media just can you just give some you know briefly just some recommendations that they can do in terms of how they can treat such an individual
1: yeah it's, it's interesting because the the long-term process is really mirrors treating an eating disorder because if you're treating a substance addiction abstinence tends to be the goal and so you could live a very happy and fulfilling life without drugs and alcohol. So abstinence can be a treatment goal for that, but you really can't be digitally abstinent in 21st century society today. So, so so, first you have to assess the severity of the problem. Let's call it tech overuse. Uh, and they haven't crossed that fine line into what we might call addiction, because I've worked with some some clients who were entirely dysfunctional in there. I mean, they couldn't function. They couldn't entirely, entirely dysfunctional, mm. uh, and they needed residential treatment. There was no way that they were going to uh, see a therapist once a week and change the course of the trajectory of their lives. That might be a minority of the cases, but so let's call it. say so the vast majority are maybe some degree of excessive use. Ideally, what you would do is you would begin to identify what the problematic. Digital usage is? Can we start talking about identifying digital vegetables versus digital candy? You know, can, you know, researching, if you're a student and you're researching a a paper for school, that's a healthy use of of technology. But if you're just mindlessly gaming or doing some other kind of activity that has no conceivable benefit to your life, and that's digital candy. Mm -hmm. Um, So you would start sort of creating a, a diet plan that cuts down the candy and increases the the healthy usage. So the goal being towards mindful digital usage and balanced, mindful and balanced digital usage. And if you could do that in a therapy once a week setting or in an outpatient setting, then wonderful. You know, if a person could be given sort of some tools to do that and, and a very helpful tool to do that is for the client. And, and I do this myself for, for, I think it's healthy for all of us to do this, is to do a once a week digital fast where one day a week, you're just, off of your devices entirely, and whether this is a family, whether this is a child, whether this is a, a college student, I find it extremely helpful in my own life. You know, the one day a week you're going to be present. You're going to be not on a TV, not a smartphone. You're just going to be fully present, and that really helps recalibrate your adrenal system in kind of a nice way. Yes. So, so things like that. You know, of course, nature is a big part of it. Antidotes to some immersive screen time. So encouraging people to participate in some of those types of activities, reclaiming some hobbies. A lot of the screen folks that I work with used to have pretty full and robust hobby lives or recreational lives where they used to play sports or other activities. And if the the screen time takes over, you see that all those things go by the wayside. So encouraging them to start playing the piano again or playing soccer again or reconnecting with things that used to have more balance in their lives.
0: Where can practitioners find more information about gaming and excess screen time so that they can improve their own clinical skills in being able to treat this problem?
1: Yeah, there's a training that we do here in the United States I'm involved in. It's it's the National Institute of Digital Health and Wellness, the NIDHW, and we do it's a a one-day, six-hour certification course. It's for clinicians and educators to be able to identify and work with technology issues, tech overuse, and and that's through an organization called PESI. They offer the training like three or four times a year. In fact, our next training, I believe what I'm doing is in January. Mm. Yeah. The, you know, my book is out there. Um, I do, I do highly recommend Victoria Dunkley's book. Uh, that's kind of a, she walks through a little bit more of a how to do the digital detox the digital fast with children. She gives a little bit more of a prescriptive step-by-step piece about that. And again, her book is how to reset your child's brain. And, and it's Dr. Victoria Dunkley, D U N K L E Y. And it's growing. I mean, there's 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 a growing awareness that this is a problem. I was going to say, when working with young people, at the end of the day, it's also finding out, connect with an eating disorder, helping them find a strong sense of self, a strong core identity, because that is where a lot of the sort of the social media, you know, shaping young female sense of body image and and sort of the the meme girl thing, and also with young boys escaping in gaming avatars they don't love who they are mm. and they're escaping into these fantasy realms so part of the therapeutic clinical work is helping them get to a place where they they accept and like themselves and don't need to live in, in the fantasy world essentially
0: yeah so it's not just about looking at strategies to reduce screen time or gaming use but also looking at the wider picture and what's going on for them or how do they see themselves how do they see the world and so forth
1: I find those strategies to be somewhat ineffective. If you're just focusing on, you know, everybody asks, well, how much screen time is enough? And, you know, and if your child has really crossed the line and you're trying to just moderate their screen time um, and you say, well, you, you can do two hours of gaming once you've done your homework and mm. cleaned your room and helped with dinner, the child, if they're still addicted to gaming and, and gaming is still the carrot that they're going to receive, Everything else gets rushed through and it's not done mindfully. Everything else is, is sort of just bulldozed. And, and so until a young person can sort of recalibrate themselves and, the, and, like you said, address the bigger picture, you know, sort of moderating screen time is, is, uh, is you know, changing seats on the Titanic. It's, it's not ultimately that effective at the end of the day.
0: Now, you've also got a book that you're finishing up and publishing sometime soon.
1: Yeah, it's uh, same publisher, St. Martin's Press, and it's really looking at a thirty thousand foot view of sociopolitical political aspects of uh, how technology is not only driving our mental health pandemic, but big tech's role in some of these things. And what my hypothesis is in this book is that social media and our immersion—you know, now that social media has swallowed up the globe—it's shaping the architecture of our brains and how we process information. Yes. So in effect, what you have is you have algorithms that are fueling polarity, which are then increasing the the experience polarity, the person's polarity in the way that they process information moving forward. So now things are black or white, love or hate, all or nothing in these extreme types of ways that I've never seen before. And I do think that that's at the feet of social media.
0: All right. Well, Nicholas, thank you so much for uh, spending time with us today. And uh, you know, thank you for the great work you're doing in the area. I think it's something that uh, we all need to be aware of for both ourselves and our patients. So, and I think you've given some, some really useful insights for practitioners to, to really consider when they're working with people with you know, excessively using screens and, and obviously just making sure that we do a good assessment and ask about what's going on for them. So yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Thank you very much for spending time with us
1: today. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. It's
0: been been my pleasure. Well, thanks, everyone, for listening today. And don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts, and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Dr. Adrian Lopresti, and thanks for joining us. This podcast is intended as healthcare
1: practitioner education only and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.